Welcome, everybody. You're listening to Ask a Leader, and I'm your host, welcoming you to January 3rd. Happy New Year 2017. It's the January 3rd edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we'll start the new year with an agenda item for your consideration, devoting the whole program to a pair of attorneys with a special niche in estate law. Laura Meyer and Marcy Miller will talk about the importance of parents in planning their wills and trusts with their young offspring in mind, including and major including children with special needs. We'll include in the discussion Laura Meyer's book, Good Parents Worry and Great Parents Plan, the guide to protecting your child with a will and trust. I want to welcome you to the show. My first guests and my only guests today are Laura Meyer and Marcy Miller, both attorneys practicing in Newport Beach. Laura Meyer is a family trust attorney working with families to meet their financial, legal, and moral obligations, which we're going to open up some more, and we'll talk about that uh, through the estate, business, and life plan, securing the family's protection. She wrote it up in her book entitled, Good Parents Worry, Great Parents Plan, The Guide to Protecting Your Child with a Will and a Trust. Laura Meyer completed her Bachelor's of Arts in English from Cal State University, Long Beach, and her law degree at Reuben Clark Law School at the Brigham Young University. She joined Klein Denitale Goldner and served as a city attorney in the in the California Central Valley and she continued advising cities, government agencies and public officials when she joined the Irvine office of the national law firm Best Best and Krieger. Laura currently serves on the board of directors at the United Cerebral Policy Orange County and previously served on a two-year term as the Newport Beach District as a representative there, Newport Beach District 4, for the Environmental Quality Affairs Committee. She's also a member of the Wealth Council, a national organization of trusts and estate attorneys, and other legal tax and business professionals who design sophisticated, that's the key word, we're going to try to get into that today, planning techniques for individuals and families. Among the many media outlets, she's appeared on our network television, The Fiscal Times, Worth, Investopedia, and Wall Street Select. My other guest is Marcy Miller, who started the Miller Advocacy Group to make the educational advocacy process accessible and affordable to all families. Prior to working in special education, Marcy practiced litigation and employment law at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher and Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. Marcy is a member of the National Association for College Admission Counseling. She earned her BA at Claremont McKenna College and her law degree at New York University. Later completed certification at the UCLA College of Counseling, focusing on counseling students with special needs and disabilities in the college application process. We devote the entire hour to both of these women's niche practices in the service of addressing families with young children and offspring with special needs. In our program today, we'll endeavor to take their workshops, which are condensing their versions of their practice, and further distill them to cover essential points for our listeners today. They both join me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Laura Meyer and Marcy Miller. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. So I think it's very important to know, for our listeners to understand, you both left corporate practices, which we know that has a, that's a whole realm of prestige and benefits, maybe certainty and returns and all that, but you left both of them. I'd like 
for you to tell our listeners your respective stories. We start with Laura. Of what steered you away from those practices into this very special kind of advocacy? Laura? Well, I originally had a background in being a city attorney. And one of the things I discovered in my role as a city attorney is that many of the problems we face in our communities is because of um, a lack of support and resources for its community members. And one of the things I wanted to do was to provide resources for families to help them become closer, to see their future, to plan a better life, and not be looking to outside resources to solve their problems, but help them solve them from within. So estate planning was actually a natural practice to go into because it is a chance for families to certainly make sure that if something happened to the parents, the kids would be taken care of. But it's also an opportunity to create a financial plan, a legal plan, and to really look at your future and decide what you want to do. And that really prompted me to start Meyer Law Firm back in 2010. Okay. And Marcy Miller, what what was the essential pivot that brought you to this advocacy right now that you're doing? Well, I believe I started my special education law practice the way that most attorneys in my field begin, by accident. Life threw me a curveball. I had a child who wasn't meeting his milestones. He didn't crawl, walk, talk, sit up, or eat on schedule. And at the time, I was practicing law at a large corporate law firm and it just returned from my second maternity leave. And I tried for two more years to manage the web of insurance paperwork and midday appointments and medical bills. Had to cut my hours and spend more time focusing on advocating for my son. And I had no local extended family and I I simply couldn't meet the demands of my corporate clients any longer. And I was an experienced attorney and I still could not fully understand his rights as a child with special needs. And I felt like I was playing a game where nobody had given me the playbook. And I wondered uh, what happened to everybody else if I was an attorney and I still couldn't do this. And I learned the language of advocacy over the years, and I began advocating for others in the community that could not advocate for themselves, my neighbors, friends, children in the community. And I eventually began a full-time practice of special education advocacy. And I saw a need in the community specifically for transition planning from childhood to adulthood. I still see a need, strong need in the community for that. And we're going to try to go into that process. There is so much to cover, and I won't beat up my listeners with that with that looming responsibility. Let's begin with the structure. And Laura Meyer place, puts this out beautifully in her book, The Guide to Protecting Your Child with Will and Trust, the Good Parents the worried great parents plan talk to us about the structure it's sort of it's we usually think in terms of planning our trust first you've got the assets and then you have beneficiaries but you work the other way around it's all to deal with who is there assuming taking over the assets of the trust who who there needs to be protected and going forward from there right so when i approach estate planning i like to think that the child is the center of the plan and not the afterthought. And so uh, any parents who have a minor child or even adult child with a special need, um, they wanna make sure their child is the center of the plan. So the way we do that is we don't just look at assets. We look at who would care for the children in the short term and long term if something happened to their kids. We look at how we would pass the money to them so they wouldn't be involved in a 
long, expensive court process. And we look at their medical directives to make sure medical decisions could be made. And also we look at legacy planning. What is it that we want our kids to know about us? What are those words of wisdom we would want to leave behind to serve them for their life going forward? And as you point out in your book, so much can go wrong that that there are so many public institutions that are essentially blunt instruments that 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 would instead of a guardian that knows the the offspring surviving the parents that the the assignment of the to a child protective services a foster parent that doesn't that's such a blunt instrument and then the whole idea of what what happens to the assets if they were to go into a probate versus go into the trust how much of that essential asset that would be supporting those offspring in such need that that it will dwindle away what those assets are and everything has to be put down very carefully and and you're finding that in your clientele there uh, or in the demographic generally uh, it's less than maybe one to five per what five percent would even have this kind of provision these provisions in place Right. So uh, statistically, we know that 70% of Americans don't have their estate planning in place. And surprisingly, they don't even have $1,000 in their bank account. And it's a it's a huge problem in our country. And of the people who are actually attempting to do these things, many of them don't have um, a sophisticated plan that truly would protect their children the way they would hope it would from temporary foster care and courtrooms and lost inheritance and turmoil. So it is imperative that when people go to approach planning that they understand it is going to be involved and they are educated enough to know who to turn to and what they need to do. Marcy, could you comment uh, on this as well about the assumptions that go into this? You have, you're, you're wanting to take the parent and have them take their special needs child from adulthood and go all the way backward and where the goal of them being fulfilled, engaged, thriving adults and going backward and addressing what needs to be in place, what assumptions need to be reconfigured about what that potential of that offspring surviving the parents is. Sure. And laying it all in. Sure. Transition planning is really a legal term that's helps a student prepare to enter a a post-school environment or really to become an adult. And the law mandates that a transition plan has to be part of the IEP for any student. The Individualized Education Program for those who aren't familiar. That's That's fine. That's right. For any student in a special education program beginning at age 16. But we found that age 16 isn't really adequate, that it really should start much earlier. And we're seeing students reach adulthood in greater numbers every year who aren't ready for college or careers or really adulthood or maturity in the ways their parents had hoped for. And that's what I really enjoyed about Laura's book is really did focus on the personal and child-centric approach. Uh, really sort of what I like to say the working back, backwards approach to planning. And so, I'm going to say a point that about the child-centric. The, we all know... S- an infinite amount of detail about our offspring, none of that will get translated unless it's put down in print. These are these are the features, these are the considerations, this is this is what works, and none of that, all those bets are off if none of that gets 
nailed down in paper in a in a a legacy type interview video and all that kind of thing. So folks, any assumptions that you have that you think, oh, it'll get translated into action, all of that vanishes as though your house burned down. I guess that might be an analogy. There's nothing left. Right, and there's no need to overly complicate things when somebody passes away. That in itself is going to be a crisis and a disaster. Yeah. Uh, so it is, especially when you have a child with a disability, it is critical that you have preserved and are passing along everything from immunizations to treatments to therapies uh, to schooling, support systems, what you want for them going forward, what the game plan is, all of those things, what comforts your child and brings them peace. Those things need to be documented because your child's world would already be turned upside down. And uh, our goal with planning is to mitigate the damage that comes with that. So let's break it down. There's the short-term considerations and there's long-term considerations. You talk about the guardian selection. There, there You said that you gotta find somebody immediately, the short-term, they gotta be at least within 20 minutes away. Because this, this moves fast. Right. So most of us parents know that we would need to name a long-term guardian to raise our kids if we passed away. But we don't really think about, well, what if they're out of state? What if they don't come right away to get to, to the kids? What happens then? That's when you start to hear words like temporary foster care and CPS, words we don't uh, you know, want for our children, of course. And so we need to name temporary guardians. We recommend you usually name four to five families who live within 20 minutes, who can keep the kids during an emergency, provide the appropriate documentation to Child Protective Services because they want to make sure your child is safe and in no good vacuums hands. allowed. Exactly. And okay. so temporary guardians is definitely something that is overlooked um, by many people and their attorneys. And it's something that's very critical to making sure your child is always remaining with people who know them and love them and who they trust. I just want to know, is there any liability, though, to and you, you want to inform anybody who's in the short term, long term, trust the, the, the list. But is there any liability downside to informing them and, and you want to change them around because of anything that could happen? Right. So not from a liability standpoint, but we always joke about this time of year right after the holidays. Everyone comes in and wants to change their guardian because they just saw their family members. Oh, um, that? Oh, that? And so okay. um, what That's I... not a resolution. It's a <laughs> revolution. <laughs> Exactly. And so wow. what we recommend is, you know, the temporary guardians, we have to alert because they'll need the documentation um, to show, you know, child protective services. But for permanent guardians, the long term, which people tend to change the most because that's a more permanent role. Okay. We recommend, you know, maybe throw it out there to them that they were on the list, but don't tell them the order or anything like that because you do not want to hurt feelings. And so it's something where we don't recommend you give that document oh, out. Okay. So that works. You, could, you don't have to say they're in the paperwork. You can go as definitively as saying they're on the list. But the order is a discrete detail you withhold, and that mm -hmm. uh, that would solve a lot of right. problems. Right, and that is why we recommend don't just name one in case people yeah. decline or, you know, they're, or you they predecease you or you change your mind. Yeah, name several in particular order and look at it every three years and make sure it's still right for your child. And every time it changes, that it needs to be a re-executed document. It does. You it is a correct. It is a legal document. So we always say with any legal document, if there's a notary block or a witness block, do not cross out or touch that document. You okay. need to re-execute it. Thank you for Trust 101. We <laughs> needed <right>. that. <laughs> and so they're in special needs. 
there's an additional thing. They need to know what the individualized education program says, and there are additional concerns here. Marcy Miller? Well, parents who have children with disabilities are are very overwhelmed by the day-to-day, just really the expense and the and the effort of, of getting through the day, focusing on where their child's weaknesses are, really that's usually what is in the IEP or the Individualized Education Plan. And like focusing on an estate plan, it's something that uh, parents really don't want to think about what, what's going to happen to my child when he or she reaches adulthood. It's but over it's the something top. Yeah. that they have to really start thinking about early and often. And instead of waiting until 16 years old when it's legally required, we really do recommend that by 14 at the latest, parents do start to think about, you know, will my child be living independently? Where will they be living? What type of community? Uh, what what are their strengths, not just their weaknesses? And what type of uh, career skills will they have? And instead of just focusing on the weaknesses, start really uh, enriching mm-hmm. their strengths. Exactly. But, I mean, Marcy Miller, I want to give you a chance to say what the scope of these disabilities might be so that all the listeners can identify with they may be on this list of concerned parents to, to address this. Because oh, well. it's really, it's not just uh, children, offspring that are on the autistic spectrum. It's many, many more. Well, the, the scope is, is very broad. Well, the autism spectrum, of course, is um, broader and broader every year. Right. Um, the physical disabilities we have learning disabilities that we're working with and um, those are of course carrying on to college now and the majority of our students are going on to four-year colleges so we have to make sure that the students are are college ready and as parents I I tell parents do not rule out four-year colleges make sure that they're financially ready to send their children to college and as for students with disabilities that they are ready for the extra expenses that will come along with that for their students and you in preparation uh, for this interview you talked about ADHD is one of the many in the this array of features of our offspring that so that people can recognize that there are more of you out there listening than you know that have this consideration that's essential to take up. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And my guests to whom we're devoting this entire hour are Laura Meyer. She's family trust attorney and Marcy Miller, whose legal practice advocates for families with special needs offspring. And we're talking now about the I'd like to get into the common trust versus the lifetime asset protection trust. They're totally different. How do we meet whose needs with those two? Laura Meyer. So as parents, we need to decide if we were to pass away, how we would pass money to our children, at what ages and on what terms. So one of the traditional methods has been, okay, if our child reaches age 25 or age 30 or 35, we'll give them a few you know, rights of withdrawal and then they'll get it all when they're 35. That would be uh, what we would call a, uh, a kind of a traditional stated age trust. A common trust is simply where you have multiple kids when you're raising them, you would keep the money all together Um, while they're being raised and the parents or the guardians could use that money to pay for the kids and it wouldn't necessarily be equally the same way right now when we're raising kids one might soak up more one month than another Um, the asset protection trust which is becoming more and more popular in our society 
is a way for parents to pass money to their kids where it's actually protected for their child's lifetime from their future spouses, creditors, predators, and any ill-intentioned third parties. And so in, I don't want to be too technical, but basically that can be done in a manner where your kids can reach a certain age and control their trust, but it can't be lost to outside parties. Um, and that is definitely something a lot of parents don't know about as an option uh, that we want them to look further into. And Marcy, did you want to address that it's expansive, but there's so many ways that special consideration can be enshrined in the, the documents that you're preparing. For, the, for college. For, for the, the lifetime protection. Is it, there's well, so would, yeah, that's really more of an estate planning technique. Okay. But one, one thing I was thinking about, too, is if you have a child with a disability... You have to pass the money to them through a special needs trust. Yes. And that right. has a lot of terms and restrictions that are different. And the reason we use that special type of trust is it allows children to continue to um, receive government benefits um, that they otherwise would be disqualified from if you left money directly in their name and once they become adults. And that's so important because those benefits are every, that's that much of the assets that are so scarce enough that you're able to take advantage your your do those governmental benefits and you you in order to make sure that all those other assets are going to cover all of those needs that may it may expand in complexity well after the parent has deceased so it's correct every piece is essential with government benefits we all know it's not enough it it hardly covers anything and it certainly doesn't provide the kind of means for a life you want for your child. And so what's nice about the special needs trust is it does allow you to supplement those government benefits with your own money you leave behind. So your child can have that type of life and you can also lay out in a memo of intent how you want the money to be used. Um, and so all of those things you want your children to be able to do, even if it's going to the opera or attending a church, all of those things, the resources can be there to help facilitate the kind of life you want. Marcy, you want to talk about the memo of intent, maybe, or even an example. I don't know what helps illustrate it the best. Because I don't think any of us know how to. I actually refer my clients to Laura for something like that once they understand what their plan will be. Because you're advocating eyes on the prize, folks, and then Laura can deal with that essential paperwork. Yeah, I step in more so looking in terms of something happened to the parents, what type of planning we need. Whereas what Marcy is doing is she's working with parents and certainly caregivers if the parents weren't there, helping them create a path for their children together. So what is nice when you do do your estate planning, we like to bring in someone like Marcy to make sure we're not just planning for death, we're planning for today, for your child's future, whatever that means and Marcy can really lay out that roadmap um, for the kids transitioning to adulthood and all those things and then I kind of come in and make sure through the estate documents that all those plans keep in place um, and will be carried out and a major event that the milestone is when they become the offspring become 18 and are legal adults what are the watchwords to deal with what is what changes and what needs to be in place the moment they become adults? So certainly we always say have your state documents in place, but really one of the things parents need to consider is if their child is turning 18 and is not going to be able to leave, uh, lead a life of independence, one of the things the parents might need to consider is a conservatorship. 
And what that is, is it is court appointed where the parents actually have to go to court. They and do. Receive power to continue to basically be the guardian of their child, make many decisions for them, um, financial decisions, legal decisions, all of those. And the, there's nine powers uh, the court may grant. And then the other piece is really what Marcy is doing is uh, just the transitioning piece. That's right. And That's and essential. The, the school system in California, the reevaluations and transition plan can continue until age 22, really. It doesn't have to end at age 18. Okay. But that request has to be made early, before age 18. So we have to evaluate that early on and understand where the child's progress is early if we, we see that the uh, child will not be ready for independence by 18. We have to put that in the transition plan. You know, the thought occurs to me, Marcy, is at what age or how do we determine when the the offspring is legally capable of being a party in executing these documents? Or maybe that's for Laura. I don't know. For, but that's a that's a very delicate, uh, open-ended kind of uh, situation. It is. And actually, that's one of my favorite parts of my job is when parents bring in their young adult child who has a disability and I get to talk with them and meet them and hear, you know, whether or not someone has a disability does not change their desire to make decisions for themselves, to plan their future and have a great life. They get autonomy. Every person wants to have that and every person wants to be respected and feel like they have a voice. And so when we look at doing planning for um, young adult children with disabilities, it is really great to hear what they want for their life, what their vision is and figure out how we can work together to make that possible. Right, and in the transition plan, the child is the center of the plan, uh, every child. So it is the child's wishes that go into that plan for employment, vocational training, uh, further education, independent living, uh, the community. It, it doesn't matter what the child's ability is. So it has to be the child's wishes or the legal adult's wishes uh, at that point. So uh, like Laura said, everybody wants to be heard and have a voice. Well. And the legacy interview, I'm, we're hopping all over, there's so many elements here. That is a supporting document that fleshes out so many other details. So would the offspring also be a part of that legacy interview? Typically not. So what the legacy interview is, it's a, it is a chance for the parents to speak to their children or whoever they'd like about their special memories, their goals, their dreams for their child. So typically it's them speaking to their child about what they want for their life and just, you know, words of wisdom and comfort if they weren't to be there anymore. And parents usually opt to do that privately without their kids present. Oh, okay. So it's, it's so every, I'm just trying to define mm-hmm. what everybody's role is. In, in all of that. So the but the memo of intent can that's where a child can definitely participate. That is the transition plan. The transition plan. Okay. Well, that's our, and but I want to know what we were talking about the legacy interview is that legally binding? Is that do you have to say in other documents like in the memo of intent? Look over here, there's a there is a legacy interview document. No. So the legacy interview is going to be more like a 
verbal verbal Facebook posts and just kind of um, but straight from Facebook. the heart. No, but it's, no, leave it's, that. I yeah, it's, it's more just what's in your heart. It's not necessarily legal. Some people do other things to supplement legal documents like instructions to trustees or instructions to guardians. Those are more legally binding to the extent possible. And that is, you know, where you want your child to attend school, kind of the details, what doctor you wish for them to see. Those kinds of things we like parents to lay out and hope they're legally binding. Whereas in the legacy interview, that's just more kind of the last goodbye. Okay. Wow. Do people change? Do they retape their legacy interviews and clients that you've been? I mean, what's the longest you've had a client? That, let's say, uh, that I'm sure they will go back to you. Oh, I've, I've had client. I've been practicing since 2003, but with my estate practice, um, you know, our 2010 clients, when I first opened the door, we see them, they come back and they do legacy interviews and they change them. They, well, they update them because yes. they perhaps had a new child or there was a remarriage or something, a life changing event where they felt the need to update. Some people like to update more than others every year, just because that's oh. what they want to do. Um, they could do that though, right? Over this, yeah, well, we our, just finished yeah. up, just sort of like our end of the year wrap. Of course, and it's actually the end of the year and beginning of uh, the year is a great time to do it because it's a kind of a period of reflection and gratitude this time of year. And so it is a great time to document and record what we want for our kids. Well, everybody's been ruminating on that. And I, I put my guests, two rounds, I guess, I gave them a list of for, a, a form with four different areas for them to reflect. And they, well, we've got about a 30% participation rate. We're gonna, I'm looking for it. So that, that's a natural, and that's why we're doing this today. For those of you who've just joined us, I'm talking with Laura Meyer, family trust attorney, and Marcy Miller, whose legal practice advocates for families and special needs with offspring here on KUCI 88.9 FM, streaming on the web at KUCI.org. Well, we are covering the lost legacy. So lost legacy really is where we, we talk about the legacy interview, which we've been talking about. Okay. Um, and so definitely something we want to recommend. I do want to add, I want to share one story though about that, that That's I think would excellent. be powerful. We had a young father come in, he's uh, married three children, and when he came in to do his planning, he was perfectly healthy. And uh, a few months later, after we had set up his plant, he learned he had stage four brain cancer. And it was obviously devastating. And one of the things I did is I went back to check the track for the, do we call it the track anymore? <laughs> but I checked the feed for his legacy interview. Um, to make sure it was perfectly intact because he was facing a terminal illness. He and, came in by himself. Um, no, oh. he and his wife had done the legacy interview when right, they right. were when he was healthy. Yes. And so when I where I happened to click, he was talking about his children, and he described each of them, their character, their strengths, their weaknesses, all of those things, and he was just kind of doting in his own voice on his kids. And he said, one thing I will say about my kids is I know they are strong kids. And no matter what happens to them, what's unfair in life, no matter what it is, my kids will overcome because I know that about my kids. And I can't help but think as his kids grow older and they struggle with the fact that they lost their father and they will be able to play that and hear their father's voice speaking that confidence in them. That is a priceless gift. That is what estate planning is about. It's not about a piece of paper. It is truly making sure everything you own, everyone you love is completely taken care of if something happens to you. 
armoring your offspring on a regular basis. Wow. So you're, you put, this is a videotaped instrument. You know, it can be video or audio. And what's funny is sometime in the beginning, we'd have moms who were constantly canceling their legacy interviews and we couldn't understand why. And so we finally asked and, uh, they said, oh, we're still, you know, they always said, I'm still trying to lose the baby weight. I said, it's audio. Just get down here. <laughs> so oh. it can be audio or video. And um, quite frankly, it's what's surprising us. The dads get quite emotional sure. and they don't want to be videotaped. They just want it to be audio because I don't know if it's a gender thing where moms are talking about these things more, but the dads tend to be quite emotional when they're uh, doing their legacy interview. Well, I actually, a, a little pointer is Whenever we talk about something that it's emotionally charged, if we express it outwardly maybe two or three times, that will take that emotional element that chokes us up and we can deliver it without that kind of disruption. I I know that from speaking on eulogies and things like that it helps or an emotional toast but so if they if you can get your clients to practice on the way over in <laughs> yeah. the car or something but it's, it's, it's very hard to think about when everything's yeah. going well and everybody's healthy to think about when we won't be here anymore so i understand why people cancel and they don't want to go and mm-hmm. it's yeah, a good day and no one document. wants to go in and think about a, when yeah tough subject around i know that's uh, it's very hard to do that but it's the right thing to do well, let's give Marcy the, the longer mic for this stretch here is she has, you've learned a lot about the potential for offspring with special needs and you know how far they can go in college. And so what are some of the things then going backward that a parent can do assuming college that they can have in place in their documentation to carry them to that life goal of, of that upper of that higher education. Well, we're seeing an increasing number of students with disabilities uh, who are graduating high school, attending college every year, and now 96% of colleges are reporting that they have students with disabilities disabilities enrolled. Uh, for example, uh, 1978, 2% of college freshmen reported having students with disabilities and last reported in 2012, that number rose uh, to 11%. 11% of college freshmen reported disabilities. And we see that number going up every year. And so colleges are prepared to have students with disabilities enrolled. They're devoting funding to it. Some are better than others, you've told me. Some are better than others, um, but all colleges have disabilities offices. Some have more services, all must Uh, give accommodations required by law. Uh, Some give more um, actual support, tutoring, uh, disabilities programs, and they'll usually put that on their website so you could see what they are. It's usually a good idea to visit the college, see what's actually going on there instead of just looking at the website and seeing what's in the college book or what's advertised. Bring your offspring with you. Actually, bring the students, go visit the disability services offices, go register before attending college absolutely we do that with our students or for our students and we we visit colleges regularly things are updated every year depending on who's enrolling depending on what kind of students they're getting and things are changing like I said every year more students are enrolling we see a lot more students on the autism spectrum every year enrolling in college 
and colleges are prepared for this now. And like I said earlier, uh, you must financially plan for this. No matter what you think is going to happen when you have a child on the autism spectrum or with another disability early on, um, you're, gonna, you're probably going to be surprised. Your child may surprise you and be ready for college. And you have to be financially prepared. However, uh, additional costs come along with that when you have a child with disabilities. Your child may not graduate in four years. He or she may not go directly to a four-year college. There may be community college or a gap year or some other life skills program involved. Which you, you recommend a gap year in your literature. Well, I do recommend that the life skills are really um, up to date before attending college. We see that the reason for failing college or dropping out of college uh, for students with disabilities um, is not academic for the most part. Mm-hmm. It's either um, um, socially, social-based or life skills-based. And in order to prevent that or to minimize the risk of that, you need, really need to make sure that the student is ready for college to the best we can. And there was a snake oil advisory that you gave me in preparation <laughs> here about off-campus disability support kind of companies that are hovering around and we're talking about protecting our assets, and they know that there is potentially their assets. So what, what, how do they present themselves, and what are the shortcomings that people ought to be very aware of when those shingles start getting hung around under n- their noses? Okay, well, all parents who have students um, with disabilities know that there's a higher-than-average dropout rate, and um, we're all prepared for that. And we also know that it's not usually because the students are academically unprepared. So... Uh, Parents are very vulnerable to type of uh, fee-based provider. All throughout the upbringing. Um, yeah. All throughout, you know, beginning when the kids are very young and trying alternative therapies, some of which we know can be very dangerous. and Or ineffectual uh, or both. Right, or, or both. And in college towns all over now, there are all these fee-based providers prop, uh, popping up. There are um, college-based, on-campus supplemental services for students who have learning disabilities or other disabilities that are also very costly, usually between about $1,500 and $10,000 per year. But those are uh, official services, you know, flat fee or hourly services that are registered on campus. But there are also off-campus services, some which are very legitimate and others which are not. And we've known parents to get bills of $50,000 or more at the end of a semester. At just the end of semester? Right. Oh, and Fif- these companies really prey on the parents who are vulnerable and worried for their students. You know, they offer uh, bill-paying services, life skills support, social support, you know, college tutoring, you know, help registering for classes. And for parents who are worried about sending their child with disabilities far from home, worried that they're going to drop out, uh, hearing the statistics, which may seem scary, uh, this is a perfect opportunity for some of these companies to prey on the parents, just like they do with some of these alternative therapies when the kids are young. And so parents really have to know what they're getting into. They have to understand. And they're very vulnerable, I think, at that point, because they're, they're exhausted socially and in uh, other realms Maybe, and even in terms of the, the marriage. And so they're, if it looks like somebody's going to take up some slack, they're, they're saying, oh, I just want to solve it this way. But, and maybe the, 
the fee schedule is not that apparent up front. So how, mm-hmm. how do people know this is serious snake oil? And, well, uh, there are some very good, legitimate companies out there also that are well-known. How will we know which ones are which? Well, it's a good idea to get a, an estimate beforehand, and it's a good idea to get a, a monthly or even weekly bill or a con- a company. put a contract down. Do you have a, a template contract. for contracts for your clients? And we're very aware of the well-known companies that surround most of the college towns. But the, the really the best way to minimize the risk is yes. to make sure the student is as prepared as possible before going away. And if the student is not ready to go far from home, uh, there are a lot of good opportunities close to home, community college for as long as possible before transferring to a four-year college. Like we said earlier, gap year programs, uh, really to make sure that a student is as prepared as possible before going away if he or she has any kind of disability or is not prepared uh, in self-advocacy skills that are going to be necessary. So this begs the question, both of you, that the memo of intent and the, uh, all these other transition documents, or even the legacy interview, could address some of those kinds of looming, vulturing sort of hazards that, uh, that, that they might be confronted with when the parent's not on the scene anymore. Yeah, all of those documents provide an opportunity to include that kind of guidance. Um, I just want to add that, you know, Marcy, both Marcy and I, you know, our job is we know parents are fearful. We know that they feel like exhausted. They're exhausted. They're fearful. uh, They've been financially drained. Mm -hmm. Um, They haven't even gotten sometimes the support that they should have from friends and family. It's a tough, tough spot. But our goal is to provide hope for those families to feel like they have a partner, somebody that wants to step in and help them and guide them, and to not be so afraid and overwhelmed, to see if there's ways to approach things differently um, that will make life a little bit easier. So I'm thinking some listeners want to know how much are they going to have to set aside for the services to set up this kind of thing? And and you're, you're telling us that anybody with any assets, or no, you, we all have to plan, but what, can we so focus our thoughts on people that are not the most well-heeled households? What are, how are they gonna squeeze the blood out of that turnip? Right, so when it comes to estate planning, California, unfortunately, has one of the most convoluted uh, court systems to deal with people who didn't plan when they pass away. And it's very expensive not to plan. In California, it's between, it starts at 8% of your total estate worth and it will slide down from there. So we use a 5% average. Okay. So in its market value. So let's say your home is worth right now, gosh, in Orange County, but five, let's say it's worth $500,000, but you have a mortgage on it of 300,000. The court would take 5% off the 500000 the market okay. value, in calculating fees. So you can easily see how um, this can go up even into the hundreds of thousands of dollars um, when you pass away if you're leaving it to the court system. For families to opt out of that and not pay that cost and not be stuck in a two-year process, 
probate court process, which that's how long it is, um, they can do their own planning. And most reputable estate firms in Orange County, you will see a comprehensive estate planning service range between four to $6,000, usually kind of in that range. If you're quoted less or more, it should be, I don't wanna say a red flag, but it should be a flag to you to do some more research. One of the things I always caution people is when you go to hire an estate planning attorney, before you ask, what does it cost? Ask them, what does your service include? Because okay. you'll see the gamut and you need to know, can I call you, email you, talk to you going forward as my life changes or will I continue to receive bills? Because that will certainly add up over the long term. That is Marcy. correct. I, I agree with Laura that we really are here as a source of support. And I want to add that it is not all bad news. Um, we do help with financial aid. Uh, there's great scholarship opportunities for students with disabilities out there. Uh, you really have to know how to find them. There are scholarships and fi financial aid opportunities specifically for students with disabilities. Uh, for specific disabilities like dys dyslexia, um, specific learning disabilities. If you plan early and you plan well, it can take some of the sting out of uh, sending your child to college who has disabilities and planning well financially, both with the estate planning and with um, education planning really does help and parents really do need the support. It is draining financially, emotionally, Socially, parents can feel very alone. They do need the support, and I think that's part of why we're here. Okay, before we wrap up to let you tell us about where more of us can, where we can follow up with c upcoming workshops and uh, ways of reaching you for, for your talks, I wanted to ask digital assets. We haven't even gotten to that. It's another front onto which we should be directing our attention. You have a virtual set instructions letter template that's available at some place so it's likely that more maybe there could be brand new entities that keep coming up in terms of the digital world but why is it so essential that we make sure the digital assets are addressed well it used to be that all of our assets were you know you would go in person to access them now almost everything's online even our bank accounts and so it is imperative that if you were to pass away, whoever you've designated to take over for you financially to administer your assets, that they know how to access your online bank account, what you want to happen with your Facebook page or your Instagram page, all of those kind of digital assets, you need to lay out what you'd like to see happen. So you're, we call it the trustee, but the person who takes over will know what your wishes are. So, and there, and you have a, a neat document that can we do set that and up. we have a virtual assets instructions letter our clients complete and what's interesting is you know just within the husband wife relationship there's usually one spouse that has taken on the role of managing the assets okay and the one who's completely in the dark and so uh, if you want to simplify things if one of you were to pass away make sure that's laid out even for your spouse a right. lot of times they don't even know you have a paypal account or whatever it is so just to make sure it is stored securely but it clearly lays out how to access those online assets and what you want to have happen with them because those go those disappear all right well i want for every for both of you to give us a chance to know where we can keep in touch we can ask for uh, where, where, where you're going to be doing some workshops where you might invite people to 
they would like you to convene a workshop in some of their appropriate settings. Laura, you want to start? Yeah, so at Meyer Law Firm, we speak quite regularly, everywhere from, you know, Apple Inc. to your local preschool. If someone is listening and they belong to a special needs group or a school or a mom's group or anything like that, just contact us at uh, MeyerFirm.com. It's M-E-I-E-R-F-I-R-M.com. You can email us or call 949-718-0420. And we'll be able to help determine if uh, bringing one of our workshops is appropriate to your school or organization. If you'd like to attend an existing one, if there is one open to the public, you will see it at MeyerEvents.com. And again, that's M-E-I-E-R-E-V-E-N-T-S.com. And Marcy. Uh, We'll be hosting a 60-minute transition workshop for parents of high school students in March. And you can find information about that on our website, which is www.milleradvocacy.com. And we also have a series of upcoming workshops and seminars on different topics, um, financial aid and scholarships for students with disabilities, college planning tools, uh, going to college with autism, and twice exceptional students in the law. And again, you can find that on our website or call our office 949-402-8266 or you can email me, marcy at milleradvocacy.com. Okay, so that is a huge takeaway, go-to, and we, I will list the uh, available resources that we didn't get a chance to talk about, some of the, the public agencies and that kind of thing, and the guides, those also go into the, the podcast summary. Laura Meyer and Marcy Miller, Thank you so much for coming on the show today and giving us this essential information that we don't want to think about. None of us have the luxury not to think about it. Agreed. It's just something we have to do as parents. That's right. Well, so thank you very much. That was Laura Meyer, family trust attorney, and Marcy Miller, attorney of the Miller Advocacy Group, addressing all the special needs. That was my wrap. Next week, we'll hear from UCI criminologist Charis Kubrin about her definitive work on rap music on trial. Then, UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix will return to look at where identity politics has taken us at this moment. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year, everyone. Mm-hmm.